Arthur Brooks is a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School and its business school. He previously served for 10 years as president of the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank. He is the author of 11 books, including two New York Times bestsellers, The Road to Freedom and The Conservative Heart. Today, he discusses his teaching at Harvard, specifically his class entitled Leadership and Happiness. Let's listen in. So uh, let me, I'm Ron Shake. I'm, I'm your moderator today or your host. Uh, it's my pleasure to, to, to uh, introduce you to Arthur Brooks, who's our, our speaker. I very much wanted to, to do this. I think Arthur is a, a true thought leader, and I think that is a valuable opportunity to hear and shift from the practical politics that we've experienced in a number of, of, of these sessions. Arthur has a joint appointment at the, at the Kennedy School and at, at, at Harvard Business School. Um, more importantly, he most recently served for the last decade as the president of the AEI, the American Enterprise Institute. Um, he took that organization um, far. Um, Fortune Magazine called him one of the 50 uh, world's greatest leaders, uh, six honorary doctorates. He must, he must have something to share with us. Um, I particularly liked his most recent piece uh, in, in, in Atlantic. I haven't had a chance to read it, but but I can't wait. It's called Why It's So Lonely at the Top. And I think a number of us intuitively appreciate it. Um, I'm interested in hearing what Arthur has to say about it today. And I um, I find it ironic that that here we are in this, this virtual world. He and I are a mile or two away from each other. In, in, in the Boston area, and there's no chance we'll run into each other because nobody's out. Um, with that as an introduction, let me hand it over to Arthur. He'll start with some comments and then Liz and I will take your questions. We prefer you to communicate them to, to either one of us or onto the chat and then we'll organize them for you and, uh, and, and engage in a real discussion. Arthur? That's right. Thank you, Ron. And thanks to all of you. And, and most importantly, thank you to No Labels for, for a vision of a better America. Um, there's nothing that actually can ensure that the United States has a great future more than patriots that put their resources behind their patriotism and that is animated by optimism, that improvement is the goal because that's always the case with what America can, can do to renew itself. And maintaining our principles in a non-contemptuous environment of mutual love for each other and for our country is really all we can do at this point. So thank you for being part. Thank you for everybody on the call supporting No Labels and, and for inviting me to, to give you a few remarks. I understand in this series that people are talking about day-to-day -day practical politics a lot. And I was the president, as you heard, of the American Enterprise Institute for 11 years, um, which meant that I was in the sort of the vortex of American policy and political controversy. Um, and so I don't want to talk about that. I mean, it's uh, I, I feel like you know I've you know I've paid my dues and and I've I've come to I'm a professor at Harvard University now, and so I want to talk about what I actually do now. And and I think maybe I'm just going to take a shot. It might be more interesting to you than uh, than than day to day politics. But when we have Q and A in about 15 20 minutes, I'm delighted to talk about whatever's on your mind. Um, just because I'm honored to be here, and I would love to know uh, kind of what's keeping you awake and and how we can make things better together. Um, I teach a class at the Harvard Business School called Leadership and Happiness. Now, before I came to the American Enterprise Institute as president, I, I, I was a, a behavioral social scientist at Syracuse University, and I did research on the neuroscience and social science of human well-being. 
That's always been my main area of research. And so coming back to that has been a delight, actually. A lot has changed in the research since then. But also, it's a, it's a balm of Gilead at this point in American life where there is so much sort of everybody's going at each other hammer and tongs to talk about something beautiful and true and good, to talk about the civic uh, catechesis in the United States that self-improvement is possible and that we can make things better. <laughs> and that's really what I'm talking about. My class at Harvard Business School has three propositions to it. Number one is that people can be happier but they have to do three things. These are the three propositions. Number one, they need to understand human happiness. They need to manage their own happiness and they need to dedicate themselves to sharing the principles that they know to create an ecosystem of happiness around them. Now, how do we diagnose the current environment? Just very briefly, um, most behavioral scientists understand that happiness, the core, the nuclear fuel rods of happiness is love and that love has an opposite, and the opposite of love is not hatred, it's fear. Okay, now that's ancient philosophy from, from Lao Tzu to St. John the Apostle, perfect love drives out fear, uh, but it's also a strong psychological principle that fear is the opposite of love. What you find in a particular culture at any time is that you have a vehicular language of policy and politics and culture that's either love-based or fear-based. The reason that we have so much unhappiness in the United States right now, and I say this as an empirical matter, the, the percentage of Americans who say they're very happy is down 20 percentage points below what it ordinarily is. The reason for that is because we're in a fear-based moment in American politics and American culture. The way to turn that around is for us to dedicate ourselves to a culture of love. Now, I'm not trying to bring back Woodstock here. Um, after all, I did run AEI and I couldn't have maintained that job in good standing if, if I were trying to, if I were be, uh, being a flower child here, although I got nothing wrong with that. I've been credibly accused of it. I'm going to tell you how I think practically speaking, each one of us can bring more love and happiness to our lives and to the lives of other people. And I'm going to tell you how I talk about it with my students. Okay. Now, when I talk to Harvard Business School students, I find that the biggest problem that they have 10 years after they graduate and they're in business is that they, they come to this uh, unsatisfactory conclusion about their lives that, that in point of fact, satisfaction was elusive. See, what we learn in you know, a capitalist commercial economy is that if we just get all this stuff that we want and we're successful, that we'll finally be satisfied. And people just want satisfaction. But you know, you can't, as Mick Jagger said, I can't get no satisfaction. That's sort of the human condition. And that's an incredible frustration. <clears throat> so how do we deal with that? Well, to begin with, um, psychologists, they look at a principle that they, they like to call the hedonic treadmill. What's the hedonic treadmill? That's basically, it's a metaphor. Hedonic means having to do with human uh, primary emotions. And that your primary emotions are, 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 they never let you get ahead. Your positive primary emotions never let you get ahead. You're running on a treadmill. And what do you do to try to satisfy yourself? Getting more of the things that you want, acquiring, buying, getting more, having more success, meeting more people, et cetera. And you're just running on the treadmill. And after a while, you realize that what you're really motivated by is fear that if you stop, you're going to get thrown off the back. It's kind of an apt metaphor. So I deal with a lot of fear from executives and graduates and alumni and students who are going into the vortex. And it's a, it's a good metaphor for what a lot of people are feeling, maybe even some of you 
on this call. So how do you deal with that? Now, I'm going to give you an example. The reason I bring this up is not because this is the answer to all of America, but because I want to tell you how I, how I teach a little bit. And then I want to talk a little bit about how each of us can use this in the current environment in America today. So here is the basic science behind what's going wrong. There is a term that psychologists use called homeostasis. What is that? That is the, the tendency of the human brain to return to a, an equilibrium, a baseline. In other words, if you're too happy or you're too sad, you can't maintain it. You'll actually go back to your baseline. If you feel out of the ordinary, that will go away relatively quickly. That's the reason that circumstances can't keep you sad or happy for very long. Okay, now that's actually behind this concept of the hedonic treadmill. But there's a way around it if you want to be more satisfied in your life. You think that there's a formula that to be satisfied, you have to get what you want. You, it's your haves. A function of your haves is your level of satisfaction. But that's not right. It turns out the satisfaction is a fraction. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a ratio of what you have divided by what you want. And if you really want to increase your satisfaction in life, stop paying attention to your haves and start paying attention to your wants. Now, you all know how a fraction works with a numerator and a denominator. You can try to increase the numerator but you're gonna do a lot more good by, by decreasing the denominator, haves divided by wants. What people are doing in their lives is they're trying to get and spend and acquire, and in so doing, trying to meet their haves, the wants that they're not managing are sprawling, like the suburbs of Atlanta. They need to start paying attention to their wants. And in so doing, their life can get more satisfying. Now, the scales tend to fall from their eyes when they talk about that. And so I'll give them some very practical advice. I think one of the most deleterious concepts in American life is the bucket list. The bucket list is, is concentrating on focusing on all of the stuff that you want, all the people that you want to meet, all the vacation destinations that you want to arrive to, all the money that you want to make. That's on your bucket list. We need a reverse bucket list, which is you got this bucket full of wants. And every year on your birthday, you need to reach in and take a handful of those wants and, and, and throw them away and be free. And you will see your satisfaction rise, I promise. Now, that's just an example. That's an example of what I teach. So let's talk now about what each of us can practically do in America today to make things better. What is the, and again, what's the method? Let's, let's diagnose, let's look at a problem. Let's look at the science behind the problem and let's look at a solution based on the neurological and social science. Problem, we have a country in America today where we are polarized and incapable of actually understanding people with different opinions than our own, politically, socially, fill in the blanks. Now there are a number of social psychologists that do work on something called motive attribution asymmetry. What's that? That's a condition in which you have two groups or individuals who are implacably hostile, and their hostility is based on a cognitive error. That error is the belief that each of them is motivated by love, but the other side is motivated by hatred. Now think about it. That has to be an error because both sides to a dispute cannot be both simultaneously motivated by love and hatred at the same time. Can't happen. It turns out that virtually all irreconcilable differences come to down to motive attribution asymmetry. And many psychologists, there are three that work together as a team at Northwestern University, 
Um, very interesting work. And they look at the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. They look at the Balkans. They look at the wake of the Rwandan genocide. They also look at couples that are divorcing that can't even speak to each other. What do they all have in common? I love you and our family, and you hate me. I love our nation, and you hate it. That also sounds a little bit like America, doesn't it? And in point of fact, the Northwestern team has found that for the first time since they've been keeping records, the level of motivation after motive attribution asymmetry is the same between Democrats and Republicans in America as it is between the Palestinians and Israelis. Contemplate that. If you think things are bad in the Middle East, you are looking at a simulacrum of American politics today between right and left. Now, this is not just a commercial for no labels, although it could be. We need to figure out how to use that science to solve the problem. Now, given the fact that, the, that the, one of the great uh, 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 models of motive attribution asymmetry is, a, is a, a, an, a couple with irreconcilable differences that's divorcing, I asked the greatest specialist to sort this out for me in marital reconciliation. His name is John Gottman. He runs the Gottman Marriage Laboratory at the University of Washington in Seattle with his wife, Julie. And he's literally brought thousands of couples back together again. And I said, John, I need marriage therapy for America. That's what I need. Because <laughs> we've got these apparently irreconcilable differences. But, you know, I think it's based on a cognitive error. I think that the problem that we have between right and left, look, there are real differences. I get it. You know, there are a lot of people who disagree with me. I'm a big proponent of the free enterprise system and American leadership, even through military means. I believe in these things. Not everybody agrees with me. Now. Maybe they're right and I'm wrong. That's fine with me. The problem is that's an unusual viewpoint <laughs> that I might be wrong. So I said, John, I think, there's a, uh, uh, I think there's a cognitive error at play, which is that all sides to dispute in American politics today are animated by the idea that they're the ones who love the country and the other side just hate our country. And they, and they want to destroy our country and they want to hurt what America is really all about, what really should be all about. How do you deal with this with a married couple that you want to bring back together again? He said, funny you should say that. He said, because it turns out that almost all couples that are going to get divorced are still in love. I said, what? I don't believe it, right? Because they always say, I fell out of love. He says, that's not right. He said, what happens is they've gotten into habits, even though they love each other, of treating each other as if they hated each other. And they don't know they're doing that to the other. So each one feels love, but perceives hatred. Motive attribution asymmetry, my friends, same idea. And so he said he can get a couple into a room that's quarreling. And within one hour after meeting them, he can predict with 97% accuracy if they will be divorced within three years. I said, John, what are you looking for? This is what America needs. And he said, eye rolling, eye rolling because it's the ultimate physical sign of contempt, of sarcasm, of dismissal, of derision. What does it say to another person? It doesn't just say I'm angry. Anger is fine. Literally, anger is uncorrelated with divorce. That's an, that's an empirical fact. And, and I'm, I've been married for 29 years to a Spaniard, and the secret to my 29 years of wedded bliss is the lack of correlation between anger and divorce. <laughs> what wrecks a marriage? It's another primary negative emotion that creeps in called disgust. Disgust is treating something like a pathogen. You mix anger with disgust, alchemically it turns into contempt. Contempt 
is the conviction of the worthlessness of another person. And when you roll your eyes, somebody perceives contempt. Think about it. Last time somebody did it to you in traffic, even it irritated you in the office, it enraged you. And in politics, it made you want to secede from the union. That's the problem today. So we have a motive attribution asymmetry problem and it's expressed in the contempt crisis. We have a crisis of contempt in America today. What can each one of us do? And the answer is to stop expressing contempt and neutralizing it with love, notwithstanding what we feel. Now, love is a strong word because love connotes in American life today feelings of affection, feelings of tenderness, but that's wrong. St. Thomas Aquinas in 1265, who was quoting Aristotle, defined love as to will the good of the other as other. Imagine this, to will the good of the other. He didn't believe that love was about feelings. He, loved, he believed that love was about will. It was an action depicting will. So what's our assignment today? Look, everybody on this call, we're blessed with incredible leadership positions. What are we supposed to do with those leadership positions? Number one, don't do harm. Number two, do good. And where does it start? How do you do no harm? You refrain from contempt, notwithstanding your feelings, because that will do exactly the opposite of what America feels today and thinks today, because that will be an expression of motive attribution and symmetry. That's what got where we are, and that's what's going to keep us there for as long as we are. Don't do that. That's doing no harm. Number two is expressing love, especially for the people with whom you disagree. So here's the assignment, my friends. I would like each one of us in the next week to find someone, because this is really person to person, find someone with whom we, we deeply disagree and express appreciation and love. And, and, and maybe it means, I just want you to know how much I admire the conviction you have for our country. I just want you to know how much I admire what you're doing and your patriotism, your love for America and your love for fellow Americans. And I want you to know I admire you personally. Expressing that love is an act of will, and it might, it might hurt, but it will get easier. It will get easier with practice. And doing that is the, is the way that we, we, we begin to fix the culture. Culture starts to change one person at a time, and it especially does at the point of leverage, which is to say one leader at a time. And I promise you, this is based in the best thinking in the leading literature and in the cutting edge science, but most importantly, this is truth that resides in each one of our hearts. And in our hearts is a love for each other and in our hearts is a love for America. Thank you for helping to make our country better. And with that, I turn it back over to Ron. Wow, Arthur, that, that was great. I, I, I must say on, on, on so many levels, I, I'm now prepared to call up uh, my, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law who I've been um, in this email tirade with for the last four months, uh, but, but seriously, you, 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 very helpful. I know we have a, a, a number of questions out there, but before I do, I'd love to just acknowledge uh, one of our, our problem solvers, caucus co-chairs, uh, Tom Susie, who's, who's out there. Tom, I don't hey, know. Hey, Tom, Tom's great. Tom actually brought me to the National Prayer Breakfast this year, and it, it almost cost us both our careers and lives.
Mac went By the way, I was only joking about the careers and lives. I love the experience that I had with Tom. And Tom and I had a, a series of conversations afterward that were incredibly rewarding. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sure he'll come back to us. He may have had to grab something. I know, Mac, you had a, a question for us. Thank you very much. Arthur, it's good to see you again. It was good to be with you in Little Rock at Stevens Conference about a year ago plus. So thank you. Absolutely. Good to see you, sir. Thank you very much. So, Arthur, you were compelling and powerful in your commentary, as you always are, at least in any encounter that I've had the pleasure to be with you. Kind of bring that down a little bit when you talked about assignments and those of us who have been fortunate and uh, to, to, to have some opportunities and worked hard to, to, to forge them ahead. But talk about the broader America, Arthur. I mean, you studied these issues depthly definitely with the just quality people that you assembled AEI. But right now we've got a lot of social unrest and strife and you're following all of this. So kind of bring that down in a way that how do we, how do we deal with people who don't feel they have the kind of luxury or ability to practice some of the very powerful concepts and depthful concepts you're putting forward? So I appreciate that very much. And, and you know, the, the environment of social unrest that we see today is, is related to the, the problems that we've been seeing for a long time. So uh, years, as a matter of fact. And, and you can actually see this building since the time of the financial crisis. You know, the financial crisis is when uh, you know, opportunities started turning south for whole classes of Americans. And the result of that was kind of a scarcity mentality in all sorts of communities around the United States. And that, and that creates a problem. Um, the, the, the solutions at the policy level are obviously nuanced and varied and, they, and, and it depends on the in environment in which we find ourselves, but they all have a certain set of things in common. You know, when I see the outrage on America's streets today, whether it was the, you know, from the Tea Party rallies to bikers for Trump to Black Lives Matter. The one of the things that they all have in common is there's an outrage over, you're not going to believe I'm going to say this, inequality. But it's not the inequality that most people are talking about. It's not the inequality of income. It's the inequality of dignity that we see. Now, dignity, you know, one of the things that one of the great American advantages is, you know, this is a country that, you know, we all, you know, everybody on this call, we all have these incredibly different backgrounds. You know, some of some of the people on this call, you know, were you know, 100 years ago, their families were, you know, running from a pogrom or or scratching out potatoes in Ireland or maybe came to this country involuntarily more than 150 years ago. But the one thing that we all have in common on this call is that we're we descend from ambitious riffraff. And we're proud of it, you know, and we're, and we're the only country in the world that's proud of that. I mean, the McClarty's, I mean, it's like 100 years ago, the McClarty's were not landed gentry. I'm just going to go right on a limb on that. And look at you. This is a great country. This is a country that really in our in our in our DNA, we believe in the radical equality of human dignity. The problem is not that we don't believe that. And that comes from our from, from our, our cultural roots that most people, whether they're religious or not, they descend from a culture that says that we're made in God's image and God is, 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 is dignified. <laughs> and the dignity has to, be, has to be reflected in each individual. And especially when we don't have a class system like where we came from in different places around the world. So here's the problem. Not that we have unequal human dignity. We have an unequal sense of human dignity. How do you sense your dignity? And the answer is to be needed. 
See, to be needed by your family, to be needed by your community, by needed by the economy and by your workplace, to be needed by other people. The problem is that we have a society that's too often looked at whole classes of people, races of people, socioeconomic structures, and said, those people are liabilities to manage. And when you're a liability to manage, you're not needed, or at least you don't perceive that you're needed. What are you? You're an asset, you're, you're a liability, you're not an asset. You know, everybody deserves to be an asset. And by the way, this is a very practical thing that I'm saying here too, because the stupidest thing that we've done in the United States is not looking at every one of our brothers and sisters who are fellow Americans as assets to grow everything. That's a huge problem. So what do we need to do? We need to ask ourselves, do I, do, do I believe that, that, do I believe that everybody is necessary? Do I believe that everybody's an asset or am I acting as if certain people are liabilities? And, and no matter how good hearted I am, when I treat anybody like a liability as opposed to an asset, I am part of the problem. And when people are fighting the way that they are and fighting back the way that they are, they're basically saying, you are systematically violating my dignity and I'm not gonna stand for it anymore. Look, we can fix that problem. Every policy that we have should be subjected to this standard. Does this treat people like liabilities or does this treat people like assets? And it's way cheaper and easier to treat people like liabilities and welfare and policing and you fill in the blanks. It's cheaper and easier to treat certain people like liabilities. And we got to stop that. And we're going to have these problems until we do stop that. Awesome. Thank you. Great. Thank you. A lot of food for thought here. This has been great. Uh, Stamen, I know Stamen Ogilvy has a question. And then I do. we'll go to Glenn afterwards and Christina. Thank you very much, Ron. Uh, Arthur, you have not disappointed by giving us a little preview of the class we would get if any of us were re-entering business. <laughs> we appreciate that as much as we always appreciated your payment. I want to go back to HBS to hear Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, I, I speak at reunions too there, so. <laughs> we, we appreciate it as much as we did your articles at uh, AEI. Thank Here's you. a question. You, you uh, sort of compared the situation politically here earlier with the Middle East. There is a recent change in the Middle East having to do with the uh, Emirates and the Israelis uh, reaching an accord and other uh, countries saying, Hmm, maybe I'll join in there. Uh, first, uh, from a geopolitical standpoint, do you uh, ascribe great hope to that? And secondly, from the breakthrough standpoint, do we have anything to learn from the Israelis and the uh, Arabs on uh, how they've gotten back to speaking to one another? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you, Stamen. And, and I am... I love the fact that there's a peace accord between the UAE and Israel. I mean, any time that implacable foes, especially those that are locked in hostility and, and where there's a declaration of war, where that's rescinded and where peace is declared, that's just good news. There, there aren't very many cases where you're disappointed about something like that unless you have some sort of a vested interest in the ongoing conflict. And I don't, and I know no one on this call does either. So that's great. Now, the problem is right now that we're in such a bitter political divide in this country that when, when there's a, a diplomatic breakthrough, some people can actually be disappointed by that. 
But let's look at the let's look at the dignity issues and the human progress issues and the flourishing issues that are going to come from that. That's really great. How did it happen? Well, it took a very, very long time, and it also took whole generations of people going away who had been involved you know, uh, uh, early on in the hostilities that actually fomented the mode of attribution asymmetry in the first place. What you frequently find in some of these geopolitical struggles is that the second and third generation, they say, I, I'm, not, I'm not so sure why I'm supposed to hate that person. I, I'm, I'm less sure than my dad, than my, than my granddad, about why I'm supposed to hate that guy over there. And, and that's what can lead to progress. I mean, time can actually heal these, these, these kinds of wounds. We even see things like that in the United States, although not entirely. Even you know, 150 years ago, the scars from the Civil War, they're still present, but they're not present in the same way as they were in the past. So yeah, absolutely. I'm expecting more progress. You know, whoever wins the presidential election in November, I'm expecting more progress in the Middle East. Will there be breakthroughs in my lifetime that solve these problems? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that I can keep praying for it. Glenn Lowenstein. Hi, Arthur. Thank you for being with us today. Um, so motive, attribution, asymmetry. We have marriage, Israel, Arabs, Democrats, Republicans. If you look at the racial issues that are going on today, who are the two sides? It's a, it's well, it, this is a multi-sided sort of prismatic struggle that we see. And part of the reason is because that, 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 that the terms have never really been defined very well. Um, you know, we live in an incredibly diverse multiracial society. And so that the sides tends to keep changing. If you go back to, for example, the issues that came out of the 2016 presidential election and you read Hillbilly Elegy, um, you know, my former you know, colleague, J.D. Vance, writes this book. And you would say that the, the sides are elites versus the white working class. If you and if you then you go into, you know, a lot of the immigration struggles, it would look like we're talking about Latino Hispanic Americans versus people who are, you know, native born Americans. And now we're talking about African Americans versus those who aren't. And so that's the ever changing terms of the debate mean that it, sort of fortunately, we're not going generation after generation where the sides are permanent. But at the same time, we have to recognize that that any the struggle can can manifest itself in all sorts of different ways. And it's good for us as leaders always to be the side that never takes sides in motive attribution asymmetry. Because, you know, the truth is, I've had the blessing until coronavirus. Um, I was doing 175 speeches a year and on the road all the time, which sounds, I mean, when I was running AEI, my job was to raise $50 million and give 175 speeches. Um, it's like running for the Senate and never getting elected, uh, more or less. And, and it was... Fantastic. I just miss it. I've got a Jones for this because I want to meet people and see things and talk to people. And I just never meet people who truly hate. I just don't. I don't meet people who hate America. I don't meet people who don't care about their families and who don't care about the communities. Do they express it in different ways and have different values? For sure. And I love that about this country, notwithstanding my own views. But the truth is that you can only maintain that cognition, that mistaken cognition, when you actually don't meet and talk to the people on the other side. When you do, all those walls start coming down. Oh, well said. Um, Christina. Thanks. Thank yeah. you, Glenn. Christina Kukas, if I got that right? Yes, Christina. you did. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hi, um, Christina. Hello. 
Um, so I, first of all, I just want to say I've, I've had those one-on-one experiences before and sort of had people taken aback by me not shaking my fist at me, at them and just having yeah. a, a normal human conversation. And I've seen those walls not break down, but at least get cracks in them. So I can yeah. attack that. Um, so on a, on a sort of a micro scale, I understand how that works, but on a sort of a more macro scale, um, this, this notion of, of leading with love, I feel like, um, there's a culture that meeting with love, um, people treat those who lead with love with sort of contempt and derision, and they view it almost like as weakness. And I feel like it's it's um, anyway. So I just I guess yeah. my like how do you how do you deal with that on a macro scale, on not a one to one person scale? So it's a great question, and and people who are leading with fear. They're they're uh, they're quite derisive about people who suggest that we lead with love. You know that's the point, right? And the reason is because if if you basically say um, this is the way I'm going to lead and this is the source of my power, somebody who comes in with a tool that's axiomatically going to neutralize your power is the ultimate threat. So you can say to yourself, "How can you be such a lousy person that you'd be against love?" Well, you know, if your bread and butter is fear, love is a big problem. Now. What is the structure of that? I, I, I call that sort of the outrage industrial complex that we have in America today. And there are a lot of politicians that are fear-based and, and exist when, you know, they're the ones who say, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. But it's also, you know, there's a big media establishment that makes millions and millions of dollars by highlighting the fear that's propagated by the other side. I mean, you notice that, you know, CNN gave 80% of its coverage when there were 17 Republican candidates for president in, 20, in the 2016 cycle, 80% went to Donald Trump. I mean, that, and why? Because he's just good TV. And, and basically it was, I want to foment viewers' strong feelings on the basis of the fear-based rhetoric of, and you get the picture of how this all, and this is a, there's a big motive in, in behaving in this particular way. Okay, so it, not to cast dispersions on anybody, except that I understand as an economist how these how these incentives are aligned. Now, here's the good news. Um, I believe fear is only ever a, an effective short-term strategy, and the reason is because it's a highly limbic emotion. The limbic system is the part is a deep part of the brain evolved more than a million years ago. And, and what it, and it, it, because of homeostasis, a concept I introduced just a few minutes ago, you can't stay afraid for very long. And I'll give you a perfect example. We tended to overreact with fear to the coronavirus epidemic, and now we're underreacting with fear to the coronavirus epidemic. Why? Because we have a primary emotion to a constant threat. And the primary emotion spikes, and then it goes down because we can't maintain it. And so at the very beginning, we're overreacting in public policy in a lot of ways. And now, and now we're, we're not reacting enough in communities. And, you know, universities are, are opening up and shutting down. And it's craziness that's going on because of this inability to maintain fear. That is our friend. That homeostasis is our friend because love can be maintained, whereas fear cannot. We are playing the long game. What do we have to put up with? People will treat us derisively. I get it all the time. I have, I have no party. I have no friends politically right now. And that's because I'm saying, if you, don't make, if you don't love your enemies, you're doing the wrong thing for America. 
who wants to hear that? I mean, that's a crazy talk. You know, certainly cable TV doesn't want to hear it and the parties don't want to hear it. But that's what we have to say, because ultimately that's that's what will win. Ninety four percent of Americans, 94 percent hate how divided we become as a country. And that means they're ready for something that will take us back into equilibrium. Is their energy as strong as that which is fomented by short-term fear? No, but ultimately we can retake the country. We just have to have confidence and we have to have patience and we have to have fortitude and we have to say, we are going to do this for as long as it takes. Thank you, Christina. And thank you for your attitude. Let me ask you a similar question, Arthur, if I could just hop on um, or hop in, you know, you know, um, fear, as you would describe it, the antithesis of love lives on the lack of nuance. And so often these discussions are without nuance. I, I, I hear these discussions where, you know, all demonstrators, anybody at a BLM event uh, are anarchists or Marxists, or you use the pejorative, all, um, all folks that, that, that want law and order Right, are white separatists, yeah. or some? You know, there's a complete lack of nuance. That yeah. there's gradations, and 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 it's along a continuum. They're not absolutists. How do you imagine we deal with that in the public in the, in the public discourse, and even in our personal discourses? So yeah, no, it's true. It's true, and you know, all cops are racist, right? Yes. All. Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, uh, demonstrators uh, are Antifa. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And and again, that's the language. That's the that's the the hard edged language that can keep people fearful. Again, if you're actually a fear based politician or leader or media leader, it's in your interest to make sure that people continue to feel fear. That the amygdalas of your constituencies continue to be stimulated and produce cortisol and, and epinephrine in, in proportion to the intensity of your message, because that's what's actually going to get ratings and viewers and demonstrators and votes and followers on social media. Completely get it, right? So the way that you ultimately, uh, that, that you ultimately win is by presenting an alternative where more and more people say, yeah, that's actually what I want. Now, it's a still small voice. Right to 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 you know to quote the um, um, to quote Elijah you know Elijah hears a still small voice I mean there's the there's the you know the raging there's the 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 earthquake and the fire and God is not there and God is that where's God in the still small voice okay now I'm not going to torture the metaphor because not everybody is you know going to you know follow these Old Testament references but the still small voice ultimately it, it, when it's right. And when it's true and when it's when it continues look I, I realize that it would be great if the problem solvers caucus had 50 senators i would love that 50 senators right 51 <laughs> yeah. 50 50 plus the vice president it would be great but <laughs> but you know the truth is that eight is pretty good because you know that's you know and, and if they're true to it and continue actually along these lines and as I was just telling Christina, um, you got to play the long game. Where do we want to be as a country in 20 years? We have to think about that right now. We have to think strategically about where the country actually has to be. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable dedicating the rest of my career and indeed the rest of my life to this mission. And I bet all of you are too. Let's go to the uh, perennial good question, Bill Galston. Bill Galston's a great American. 
and a yeah. great writer. I read Bill Galston every week. Thanks, well, Arthur. Good to, good to see you again. Good to see um, you too, my friend. I had, I must confess, a complex reaction mm -hmm. to the line of argument you were advancing. Uh, <laughs> the no labels part of me resonated to it. Uh, the more philosophical part of me had a problem. Okay, and, what's your problem? Tell me the problem part. Yeah, let me let me let me explain. Uh, my favorite psychologist is Aristotle. <laughs> you know, who wants to find courage is fearing the right thing in the right way, in the right amount, at the right time. Okay, and behind that proposition is the idea that sometimes there is a rational basis for fear. It's not just in our heads. Uh, and as I look around the world, uh, I have to say that there are circumstances in which it is rational to fear, perhaps even on an existential level, the motives, the intentions, the plans of the other. The presupposition of your argument is that it's all in our heads. And I don't believe that's true. Uh, and when, Wilt, when Winston Churchill was trying to persuade the Brits in the 1930s to be very afraid of Adolf Hitler, it wasn't in his head. There was a genuine threat that needed to be confronted because the cost of not confronting it was annihilation. So behind your argument is a premise that it's in our heads. Maybe I'm misunderstanding it. So it's not the, it's, my premise is not that it, it's, it's in our heads. In point of fact, there are things that I'm afraid of. There are things that are, and, and, and by the way, Bill, they're different than the things that you're afraid of. You know, I'm afraid of things in public policy because I'm more politically conservative than you are. And so the things that I'm afraid of, the question is, to what is it, what does the fear rise to? Does it, does it rise to being the vehicular um, emotion behind what I'm actually trying to do patriotically and what I'm trying to do in public policy? Or actually, can I have it be part of a complex basket of cognitions and reactions to public policies today? The problem that I have with the description, the, the, the metaphor that you gave of the current environment, current political environment in the United States with what Winston Churchill was facing in reacting to Adolf Hitler, because I don't believe that we're in a Hitler moment. I don't believe that what we see in, in politics in the United States today, as objectionable as big parts of it might be to me, and in point of fact, they are, they are not the Nazi threat. I think that that's an unreasonable metaphor to make. And I think that we all have to have enough uh, perspective to say that. Now, maybe I'm asleep at the switch. Maybe I'm hopelessly naive. But I don't think most Americans actually think that it rises to the existential threat that we're talking about. I think that we have deep ideological differences, which is different than an existential threat. So am I afraid of certain public policies when, you know, when, Actually, I'm afraid of public policies no matter who gets elected president of the United States on November 3rd. But that doesn't mean that it rises to the point of becoming the vehicular primary emotion behind my actions. On the contrary, I choose to have love be the vehicular emotion. 
understanding that I'm also worried about other things as well. Will there come a point in American history during my lifetime where fear becomes transcended to the point where I'm forced into radical action? Maybe. Are we there yet? Not even close. But that's my judgment call. Well, let me just follow up briefly and say that you misunderstood me. When putting the Winston Churchill example on the table, I was in fact not using it as an analogy with the contemporary United States. I was just using it to make a broader point. Okay. Namely, that there are circumstances objectively in which existential fear is warranted. And okay. so yes. and so the power of you know the power of your love prescription depends on our being in a circumstance in which existential fear is not warranted. And that's an empirical judgment. Okay, in, in which case, Bill, you and I agree. In which case, you and I agree. That's not the circumstances under which I find America today, but um, I think that there are certainly historical circumstances and there are theoretical circumstances even for this country in the future, which I hope we don't arrive to, um, in which you're quite correct. Yep. You're right, I did misunderstand you and I, I think that your point is well taken. So Arthur, how do you break down those fears? Right? I mean, when you have everybody else running around with fears that are of opposing nature, how do you yeah. ultimately break them down in a practical, real way? So there are two ways that you do that in any case where people are animated by fear. The, the first way that you do that is to stop exposing yourself to messages of fear. And the second is you start exposing you to the source of your fear, exposing yourself to the source of the fear. And these are both, you know, clinical psychologists have this, you know, well in hand. It, you know, if you if you find that you're you know desperately afraid of something pathologically, so you have a phobia. Generally speaking, you will be um, you know people that are whatever source is fomenting the fear has to be inhibited, and then you need to be exposed to the source of the fear, with, which is what they call exposure therapy. So, what does that mean for Americans? You're being told by Fox News and MSNBC and CNN and and you know the radical seven percent fringes in Congress and virtually all of social media that you should be hateful and fearful of the other side, whatever the other side should be. Turn it off. That's, that's, that's prescription number one. Turn it off. Prescription number two is get to know people with whom you disagree. <laughs> Sit down with people with whom you disagree. Break bread. Listen to the people with whom you disagree. And I've done this a bunch of times. Even when I was president of AEI, I would get groups of people together when I was on the road. And the first thing I would ask them to do is to talk about their common loves. In other words, and, and or, or, or maybe I should say loves, but also common enemies. Tell each other about your teenage kids, right? And, and, and there's, I'm telling you, after they do that, they can't hate each other. And the political stuff kind of recedes. And the reason I started doing that is I had an experiment with my brother. My brother and I disagree on everything politically. My brother's very, very, very strong progressive lives in Seattle and where I grew up. And uh, I noticed that we never get to politics, not because we're trying to avoid it, but because, you know, we're talking about our parents of blessed memory. We're talking about, you know, our kids. We're talking about our religious faith. We're talking about all this stuff that's more important. So you can elicit people to actually get beyond their fears by talking about their common loves. And that's the two ways that you do it. Turn off the outrage industrial complex and turn toward each other in, 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 in a common humanity. And in conscious conversation. Thank you. All right. I know we've got at least three more good questions in about 12 minutes. Let's throw it to Howard Sherman. Howard, and then we'll go to Christopher Anton. 
Thanks so much, Arthur. As, a, as an ex-HBS guy from 40 years ago, you bring back the fear I felt as a first-year student. <laughs> down that memory lane. But I want to talk about the difference between what I would call as the boomerang theory, meaning that if I throw it out there, that love and appreciation for different perspectives, that it will come back. In my personal case, I tried that. I literally ran for the Senate here in Mississippi, and it worked until it got to the institutional level. So when I finished first in the primary amongst six candidates, literally the two parties got together to take me out under the theme of greater enemy doctrine. Just like you can make the case in the Middle East, the UAE and Israel have come together because of the greater threat from Iran. So me as a private sector guy who was self-funded, who didn't need anybody to go to Washington, both parties said, oh my goodness, I don't care what this guy's bringing, we have to eliminate him. So on an institutional level, the ability to affect what you're talking about is so deep rooted. One-on-one, -on -one, I can turn friends of mine, even HBS friends of mine who are schooled and eat what you kill, but what do we do about the institution? Yeah. So the, <clears throat> the institutional question really requires institutional answers. And I would like to say that if we just like, you know, sit in a circle and tell each other we love each other, everything would change. But in point of fact, we have a duopolistic, basically rigged system that's now governed by incumbency and gerrymandering. And I, you know, I'm bringing Coles to Newcastle by bringing up this subject and, and no labels. I mean, this is something that, that No Labels has been involved with for a long time. And so we actually need um, to, to be proposing a systematic set of solutions to the gerrymandering and incumbency problems in, in US Congress to try to break some of that hold on the, on the duopoly between Democrats and Republicans. Now, that doesn't mean that we're suddenly gonna be able to do that. But ordinarily policy victories, they follow a certain trajectory or they follow a certain path. When, a, when it's proposed at the major level, it usually takes something that's that big would take 12 to 15 years to execute. And then it requires a full press every single year until the, until the window of opportunity actually opens. And, it, and, the, and the press is not just legislation, it's actually trying to change public opinion on the subject. Just try, really trying to change public opinion. Now, everybody likes the incumbent in their own district. What they don't like is the incumbency in everybody else's district. And so you have to weaken it that way and, and take that on as, a, as a, an actual enemy to enemy of our progress in the United States. If somebody like you simply can't get elected because the duopoly, which is kind of, it's this corrupt, cronyistic politics, says that you have to stay out, well, that's simply not democratic. And you know that becomes a problem, but that is the that is the trajectory. That is the basic path where where policy um, where policy reforms can happen. And we have a bunch of. By the way, at AEI, we actually wrote about those things. Um, how did welfare reform happen? It was unreformable. And by the way, it still kind of looks unreformable. But how did welfare reform happen in 1996? Well, it took from about 1982 trying again and again and again and again, actually bringing forward something that made the moral case, not the practical case, the moral case, that we were not living up to our values and, and we were hurting the most vulnerable members of society with our welfare system, that finally made it so such that it was possible that a, 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 a very courageous Democratic president passed it with a Republican Congress. And, um, and I think that we can actually do that in the case that you're talking about too. It's a hard thing to do, but we have to get after it. <clears throat> Thank Thanks. you. All right, let's go uh, to Tom Suzio. I know he's back with us. Tom, hey, 
Hey, it's Tom Swazi, just so you know. Uh, Hi, Tom. How York. are you? Yeah, How you doing, I know Hunter? you, Tom. I was just talking about the fact that you, you, you recruited me for the National Prayer Breakfast and it changed our lives forever. Do you remember the, <laughs> you know, Arthur gave a similar speech to what he's talking about here today. And he talked about the importance of love your enemy. And the president got up and said, I don't think I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It was a bold move at the National Prayer Breakfast to, to disagree with Jesus, I will say. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to, I, I'm, I'm off and on here. I actually took the day off. I went fishing this morning. I'm golfing now. So I just wanted to come on and praise Arthur for the great work that he does. Uh, it's so important that he's spreading this message, not only, uh, certainly not as a Christian message, but as, as a secular message, as a a common sense message is what we need to try and move the world forward. Everything is so complex these days and you can't solve complicated problems in the midst of fear and anger. You can't, you can't get to the complicated points. The, as someone said earlier, the nuanced points that need to be made and you need people of goodwill that are willing to sit down and try and hash through these complicated problems and find common ground. And that's what no labels does. That's what the problem solvers does. And that's what Arthur is encouraging all of us to try and get more people to do. Uh, you know, I've, I'm a pretty moderate guy who tries to find common ground with people. I am a Democrat. The president is promoting this culture of fear and anger more than anybody. I, it's, it's, just, it's just the reality of the situation. I'm sure a lot of low pit, no labels people want to hear me say something as partisan as that, but that fear and anger that he's, he, that's his bread and butter. And we've got to figure out how to push that out of our lives. So it's, it's in the media, as you say, it's in social media. It's uh, in our politics. It's infecting our everyday lives. Uh, we have got to figure out how to find people of goodwill, which most people are. You know, most normal people just say, hey, can you just sit down and work it out? Can you just find some common ground? And instead, it's all just these extremes controlling our conversations. So I just want to thank Arthur for his goodwill work. I want to thank No Labels for their great work and uh, for encouraging all of us and by trying to promote these type of ideas. It's it's such a central part of our success moving forward. So I apologize. I've been off and on. I have to go hit a drive, actually. So I'll see you guys. Right. Thank you, Congressman. Let's go to Thank Elizabeth you. Latta for our last uh, uh, question. Hi. I was um, uh, wondering what Arthur has to say about, about the cancel culture. I'm, I'm from the left of center, and I'm very disheartened uh, by, by the lack of response disregarding that the Harper's letter to to the cancel culture and and feel uh, frustrated about what what can be done uh, to, to help that. Thank you. I uh, appreciate the question a lot. And it's it's on my mind um, because because I teach at Harvard <laughs> and we have a cancel culture here, like at every other university. The truth is that there is a, you know, a big effort to gain power by shutting down different voices. And, and th this is actually nothing new. When there's conflict and when, when people disagree and they're actually trying to get to some sort of a consensus, what, what do leaders have? They have sort of three tools. They have coercion, they have negotiation, and they have persuasion. Well, the tool of the enlightenment is persuasion. That's the gold standard. Um, I, that's where pluralism and differing points of view, and again, no labels. It's the whole idea of let's disagree, let's mix it up, let's figure out the things that we don't agree on, things that we do, and let's make progress on the areas of our, our commonality, and let's try to persuade each other. And that's because it's a very classically liberal, a very enlightenment set of values that animate this organization. 
They also have traditionally animated the American university system, but but you know, from time to time in, in journalism and academia and entertainment, we have flare-ups of moving backwards from persuasion to coercion. The cancel culture is saying basically you need power. That if, if somebody's doing something that you don't like, it's because they have power and they're exerting it over you. And the only way to solve this problem is by banding together and taking away their voice. If you don't like what somebody says, shut it down. The enlightenment view is the answer to bad speech is more speech, <laughs> not no speech. And so it, this is fundamentally the cancel culture issue. It's not just kind of a, a skirmish. This is central to whether or not we actually believe in enlightenment values. Now, it will fade before it turns into this pitched battle over the enlightenment. I don't, I don't mean to blow it up into something that's more grandiose than it actually is. But that's what it philosophically represents. And that's the reason we need to stand up for free speech. How do we do it is a real question. And the answer is always the same. You fight for the free speech of the people with whom you disagree. That's how you do it. And so this is what you're doing. I mean, you said you, you started by saying, look, my own politics are center left and I'm, I'm, I'm really worried about college campuses, the cancel culture, which is largely on the hard left. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to be on the hard left. I can imagine the cases where the cancel culture is really on the hard right, not on campuses because there's like two Republicans in academia. But, you know, but in certain in, in other areas, you could absolutely see that. And if that's the case, it's my responsibility to stand up against it. Because you can, you can make progress not by standing up and saying, my enemies are wrong. You can make progress in enlightenment culture by standing up and saying, my friends are wrong. And that's ultimately what we need to do. So my, my bottom line is, um, thank you for the question. And we, we need you. We need you a lot in academia. Thank you. Oh, let, let me just end this with, with a comment. We need you, Arthur. We need your perspectives. We need to continue to provoke ourselves and to think about how we do go about bringing people together and engaging in real discussion. That's at the heart of, of No Labels and the Problem Solvers Caucus. So on behalf of No Labels, let me thank you for participating and for being part of this group. Thanks everybody. Thanks. Thanks. Before joining AEI, Arthur Brooks was a behavioral social scientist at Syracuse University, researching the psychology of well-being. In his class at Harvard Business School, he teaches that people can be happier if they one, understand human happiness, two, manage their own happiness, and three, share the principles they know to create an ecosystem of happiness around them. He reiterates the ancient philosophy that the basis of happiness is love, and the opposite of love is not hate, but fear. He maintains that the reason so many Americans are unhappy is because fear is the dominant emotion in our politics and culture. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. <laughs>